Welcome to the Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota podcast. Safe Passage for Children's mission is to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. This series of episodes will take a closer look at our short weekly policy blog, or eBrief, to give you an inside look into Minnesota child welfare legislation, policies, and practices happening right now in Minnesota affecting abused and neglected children, as well as those who work with or care for them. It is our goal that this podcast is educational, informative, and bold, increasing collective knowledge on these issues, as well as raising our voice to speak up for the needs and the safety of vulnerable Minnesota children. If you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Stick around for this week's eBrief podcast episode featuring Safe Passage for Children's Executive Director, Rich German. The Safe Passage for Children blog for today is entitled, Our Family Assessment Evaluations Credible. So I'm going to read that and then give you some additional comments uh, on it. Uh, so this uh, blog says that in their paper called Issues in Differential Response, or DR as it is known, the authors Hughes, Rikus, and others in their group analyzed 57 studies and evaluations of the DR program that were written between 1993 and 2010. And the DR program is known in Minnesota as Family Assessment, or FA. So these authors noted that the few evaluations that showed positive outcomes for DR were mostly written by the same consultants and paid for by the organization that created and promoted differential response, which is Casey Family Programs. Now, these favorable studies claimed that differential response kept children safe while engaging parents more effectively than traditional approaches. And Hughes and Rikus concluded that the evaluation authors manipulated the data to obtain these findings, and that most of the other studies they looked at had opposite results. Then in 2019, Catherine Piper et al. analyzed an additional 50 studies of differential response and reached similar conclusions. So the bottom line is that the accumulated weight of these studies and of the concerns that they raise about DR or family assessment in the literature, that accumulated weight is substantial. And it is important that the proponents of family assessment in Minnesota address them more fully than they have to date. So that's the blog, and here's some comments about it. There's so much more to be said about this topic than we could cover in this short blog, or even in in this podcast. But let me start with some comments about... Carl Piper, Carl with a, with a K, he was a 1930s to 1950s era German philosopher and a political activist. He wrote some of the most influential works in analytical philosophy during his time, and in addition, as we can well imagine, he also had a lot to do as an activist in Germany around that time. <clears throat> Popper coined the phrase pseudoscience. He used it to critique fads like phrenology, you know, that's the one where they look at bumps on your head to tell you things about your personality, but also uh, Marxism and Freudian psychology, among others. And what he meant by pseudoscience is writings that are intended to justify a particular theory or point of view, 
that they're not seeking the truth because they already have a conclusion in mind, but they take on the trappings of research and science in order to appear more objective. And while they don't use that exact term, the academic people referenced in this blog essentially accused the consultants who were paid by Casey Family Programs of engaging in pseudoscience. These authors that we cited are among the most respected and well-known researchers in the child welfare field. They include uh, Ronald Hughes, Judith Rikus, and their colleagues at the Institute for Human Services in Ohio, Catherine Piper at the American Professional Society on the Abuse of Children, Elizabeth Bartholet at Harvard Law School, and Frank Vandervoort at Michigan Law. So as mentioned, Hughes, Rikus, and their friends analyzed 57 studies, evaluations, and research papers conducted on differential response between 1993 and 2010. And then in 2019, Catherine Piper updated this project by analyzing an additional 50 documents that had been produced between 19, 2020, 2010 and 2018. So just a, a little bit of introduction for people who aren't familiar with it. Differential response, or again, family assessment as it's known in Minnesota, is an approach which attempts to correct perceived problems in child welfare by creating a more, quote, family-friendly approach, close quotes. So the proponents are concerned about practices uh, that they think are racist or that are disrespectful to uh, uh, people who are living in poverty. Um, and so the family assessment practices include giving parents advance notice of the initial child, where, uh, child protection visit, interviewing children in the presence of the adults in the household, deliberately not doing any fact-finding, and deliberately not keeping any record of anything that might have been discovered in the assessment process. I think, for example, of the 2015 uh, child Protection Task Force that uh, then-Governor Dayton in Minnesota put together. Uh, we were hearing testimony, I was a member of that task force, and we were hearing testimony by a social worker about how uh, differential response or family assessment works. And uh, a retired Chief Justice of the state Supreme Court said, well, you don't do any fact-finding. What would happen, though, if you went out there and just discovered that it wasn't just a simple situation like educational neglect, but actually there was sexual abuse going on? And the worker famously said, well, I wouldn't follow up on that because it wouldn't be fair to the parents. So that will give you as good of an idea of this mindset as anything else I can say. Um, so the Hughes and Rikus paper focused heavily on five evaluations of state DR programs conducted by a small group of consultants called the Institute for Applied Research. Uh, and Hughes and Rikus were skeptical of the results in part because they were all paid for by Casey Family Programs, which, as I mentioned, is a foundation. It's based in Seattle, and it literally created differential response out of whole cloth in the early 1990s and then spent many, many millions of dollars promoting it among states. Uh, Casey Family Programs has at least, they're, they're not really open about it, but at last count, a $2 billion uh, endowment, which throws off uh, a couple hundred million dollars a year that they spend all in the child welfare field and all to promote their vision of what child welfare uh, should look like. So these evaluations really don't pass the smell test. They're very much like the tobacco industry um, uh, paying for people with some science credentials to say that smoking is healthy. So you can understand the skepticism of Hughes and Rikus. 
In the end, though, with this approach, Casey persuaded at the peak about 35 states to adopt some version of differential response. And since then, subsequent experience has been that there have been a number of high-profile child fatalities. At least a dozen states have been caused by these and other concerns to end or suspend their DR programs. Uh, and so, you know, some of the things that Hughes and Rikers are saying are problems are actually, have actually turned out to be problems in real life. So let me give you a brief summary of what Hughes and Rikers found. First, that DR programs don't have a standard practice model and are implemented differently across states. So that makes it difficult to begin with, to draw any conclusions about differential response. Second, as they put it, there are methodological problems which limit confidence in the research, which is an academic way of saying that the evaluation authors manipulated the data to get the results they want. In fact, Hughes and Rikers do come right out and say that in the details of their paper. So in other words, Hughes and Rikers are saying uh, these authors engaged in pseudoscience. Third, there wasn't enough data to substantiate the author's claims that children are as safe or safer in differential response programs as in the traditional child protection approach. Um, saying that the children are as safe isn't a very impressive claim because the differential response families are supposed to be much lower risk families. And so you would expect them to have fewer re-reports of child maltreatment, for example. Um, also, the authors use data to measure safety that is a bit suspect. In Catherine Piper's follow-up work in 2019, she pointed out that the authors used substantiated re-reports of child maltreatment as one measure of child risk. However, by definition, cases that are put on this differential response track don't get a finding of maltreatment. That's one of the parts of the deal. So it wouldn't be possible to have a repeat finding. Uh, you can read more about this in, in the articles, and I put links to them in the blog. And then finally, differential response programs, particularly the Family Assessment Program in Minnesota, gave workers in this alternative response lower caseloads, and they provided families with more services than those receiving the traditional response. Therefore, it wasn't surprising that families were found to be more satisfied with family assessment than the traditional program. But perhaps even more importantly, services uh, received under family assessment tend to be concrete forms of help like money for rent and appliances. And family assessment differential response generally avoids confrontational services such as requiring counseling and chemical dependency help. So um, it's not surprising that uh, people are more happy with this. Nobody's pushing them, and they're giving them money. Um, and also it should be noted that some of these findings, most of these findings, were based on surveys with very low response rates. So that raises the possibility that the people who were happy with the caseworker tended to respond. You know, that's the way sometimes it goes. So in her follow-up analysis in 2019, Catherine Piper also noted that a major claim of differential response with that was that parents would be more engaged in addressing their child maltreatment issues because of this more family-friendly approach. But in fact, she found that the uptake of services in differential response programs was quite low. Now, this 2013 paper by Hughes and Rikus was a big moment in child welfare. It significantly accelerated the criticisms of differential response. Uh, so as a result, the journal 
called Research on Social Work Practice devoted an entire issue to Hughes and Rikus and their paper and to inviting commentary by other people. Um, so predictably, the authors of the Casey evaluations commented and protested that their professional integrity was being impugned by Hughes and Rikus, and in reality, it was. Uh, two of the contributors to this journal I wrote an article. They are Viola Vaughn Eden from the American Professional Society on the Abuse of Children, or APSAC, and Frank Vanderbort of Michigan Law. Um, they said, and I quote, that Hughes and Rikus have written a seminal argument, uh, article that earnestly calls into question the child welfare's field's adherence to differential response. It may be the most important article in child welfare in the past 15 years. They went on to say that the article should be widely read, its lessons absorbed, and its message translated into policy and practice. So they liked Hughes and Rikus' article a lot. Um, and then the commentators go on to say, as Hughes and his colleagues demonstrate so poignantly, there is, and this is, this is important, there is little objective empirical evidence supporting the efficacy of differential response. What support does exist in the literature is deeply flawed methodologically and riddled with bias. Those are strong words for an academic type. They go on to say, in some instances, what has been presented as empirical research is but thinly veiled advocacy. But advocacy what? For what? It is not clear what differential response is. Uh, and then he goes on to say that reading the summaries of the various approaches in Appendix A, uh, uh, he he said it makes you ask how a program with so little empirical support gains such favor when at least 35 states utilize some form of the program in this era of evidence-based practice. And one answer is that the programs are politically popular. They speak to the concerns of civil libertarians on both the left and the right. On the left, they see child welfare as an unwarranted attack on the poor, minorities, and otherwise disadvantaged. And on the right, often for conservative religious reasons, promote a hands-off approach to the family. Also, then, in 2016, APSAC devoted an issue of its newsletter, the APSAC Advisor, to a critique of differential response, and it was headlined by the first article, which was entitled, Differential Response, a Dangerous Experiment in Child Welfare, which was written by Harvard Law Professor Elizabeth Bartholet. So you get the overall picture. Many of the most respected and well-known researchers in the field of child welfare have raised an increasingly loud alarm about differential response. Uh, as Catherine Piper details more in her paper, at least 12 states have discontinued their DR programs while they review them or have ended them completely, and six of those have done so because of high-profile child murders in the DR program. So, the weight of serious criticisms of DR programs in child welfare literature and some of the horrific outcomes, including in Minnesota, we still are having one child murder per month, and many of them have been child uh, family assessment cases. Uh, this seems overwhelming. Why would you continue with this? So, the obvious question is, why are proponents of DR continuing to defend it? Strongly, I would say. And that is the subject for an entire podcast by itself, but the short answer is that proponents of DR believe so strongly in this approach that they have not so far really been open to data or research uh, or logic indicating problems with it. 
They see it as a way to address racism and to address what they think is the disrespect for poor people that they believe is rampant throughout child wear. But we have to point out, and Hughes and Reich has pointed this out in their article, that the people who are characterizing child protection workers and their managers and leaders in this very negative way have not actually produced any evidence to back up the idea that that's the way child protection workers operate. So clinging to a belief is not surprising in an era when people do that regardless of facts. The tenacity of the commitment to continue with family assessment in Minnesota is daunting. In our experience, it's not very likely the family assessment proponents that the leaders uh, in this area will be truly open to much of a real conversation about what the research really shows. And this brings us back to our ongoing conclusion that things are not going to change voluntarily. It's either going to take some kind of uprising of public opinion, which is a long shot, or legislation or litigation to bring about change, a change in direction. And as we have described in a recent blog, the prospects for making changes through litigation are really slim in child protection because of court decisions both by the federal and state Supreme Courts that give child protection workers and by extension their county managers virtual immunity from lawsuits no matter how negligent they have been. So we are committed to our ongoing strategy unless something changes to continue to try to change child protection practices through legislation. So more on this next week. Well, with that, I want to thank you, Rich, for sharing your time and your expertise on these issues. Again, if you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Until next time, this is Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, working to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. If you would like to learn more about Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, please visit us on our website at safepassageforchildren.org. There you can sign up for our email list, read all of our eBrief blog posts, register for our free bi-monthly webinars, watch our featured videos, and more. You can also follow Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn.